The Old Testament reading this morning is from Psalm 129. Often have they attacked me from my youth. Let Israel now say, often have they attacked me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed on my back. They made their furrows long. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops that withers before it grows up, with which reapers do not fill their hands or binders of sheaves their arms, while those who pass by do not say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel reading this morning is from Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, these are challenging words from your scriptures, and we pray that you would be with us this morning as we sit with them and reflect upon them, and that you would meet us in this moment and show us something of the glory of your son Jesus, that we would be changed. We pray also that you would meet us in our experiences of suffering and comfort us, that we may know of that comfort that the Apostle Paul spoke of this comfort that you give to us in our afflictions such that we may comfort those who are in any affliction with the same comfort we ourselves have received from you. May we know that experience even this morning we ask through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. So for the past uh, 10 years or so, every time I've come across this psalm or one like it, one of these psalms, so-called psalms of imprecation or cursing, I have thought of it uh, in connection with the legacy of Dr. Charles Tindley. Uh, Charles Tindley was born the son of a slave, uh, grew up 
uh, among slaves in Maryland, though he himself was a free person. And then after the Civil War, he actually moved here to Philadelphia and got a job as a janitor at a church. And he spent 25 years, really, uh, educating himself and eventually um, became a pastor at the same church where he had worked as a janitor. Uh, and under his leadership, that church grew from about 130 members to being a multiracial congregation of over 10,000 members. And the church building, which is located actually just down the street here at Broad and Fitzwater, was added to the National register of historic places just a couple of years ago. But for all of Dr. Tindley's fruitful ministry uh, and his contributions, perhaps his most notable enduring legacy is the song that he published in 1901 a hymn called I'll Overcome Someday. And now we know the song by another title, which was given to it after Pete Seeger and the Highlander Folk School of Music modified the song in the 1940s and titled it We Shall Overcome, the song that became one of the great anthems of the American civil rights movement. And you know the words, right? We shall overcome, we shall overcome someday. Oh, deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome someday. The Lord will see us through. We're on to victory. We'll walk hand in hand. We are not afraid. The truth shall set us free. We shall live in peace. Oh, deep in my heart, I do believe we shall live in peace someday. And this song has been used in an unbelievable diversity of contexts and places around the world. Over the years, Joan Baez sang it in 1963, leading a group of 300,000 uh, in A. Philip Randolph's March on Washington. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. famously used it in sermons and speeches. Presidents and senators have used it. It's been used in anti-apartheid movements in South Africa and anti-Soviet movements in Eastern Europe, in protests in Tiananmen Square, and so on and so forth. The late American hero and civil rights leader John Lewis even credited this song with buoying him during the hardest moments and years of the struggle when he and his fellow fighters for freedom were beaten and arrested and opposed over and over again. Lewis said that we shall overcome the song, the lyrics, and singing it together as a group of fellow sufferers gave, quote, a sense of faith, a sense of strength to continue to struggle, to continue to push on. You would lose your sense of fear, Lewis said. You were prepared to march into hell's fire. So what makes a song like that so powerful? What gives it its staying power? I think it's just this, that it gives voice to shared suffering but it doesn't stop there. It gives voice to shared suffering in a way that begins to work in the minds of the singers that their suffering has not been in vain. And so it moves from a place of shared suffering to a place of shared hope and then finally into this place of shared action. And it cuts against the grain of our call-out culture, really, if you think about it, by calling us in to a more hopeful and productive way to channel our outrage away from the venom and vengeance of self-serving pursuits of personal victory toward the kind of lamentation and healing that fit an honest and shared pursuit of justice and peace. And that's exactly what this psalm Psalm 129 and psalms like it 
do for us today. And that's what we need them to do for us today. Psalm 129 is a song for pilgrims on a journey. It's one of a group of Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. And these are songs and prayers that the ancient Israelites would sing together on the difficult, the difficult road of pilgrimage toward Jerusalem when they would leave the safety of their homes and they would go to worship the Lord, Yahweh, at the temple. And along the way, they faced dangers, obstacles that might threaten to deter them from continuing on. There were thieves in the hills along the road. We heard about them last week, if you worshiped with us then. The contempt of neighboring peoples, or even just the distance of the journey itself was dangerous and a deterrent. But along the way, the pilgrims would sing these songs, these psalms of ascent to, rem to remember together in their liturgy that this is who we are. We are the people of God, and this is who our God is, the one who is making things right, the faithful one. Shared suffering and shared hope that leads to action. This is the essence of the pilgrim's song. And it's what we find here in Psalm 129, which is a psalm about perseverance. It's a song intended to be sung together. It's intended to strengthen the people as they lived among other peoples that made it difficult for them to continue in their life and pilgrimage of faith. And so the psalmist here begins to wrestle with this question that maybe you and I are wrestling with in our own way this morning. How can we continue to move forward in faith? Time and time again, when all the pressures around us tend to make that so hard. How do we continue to move forward in our own journey of faith, our own journey of personal growth, our own journey of becoming a better ally for others who struggle and face injustice? our journey of becoming a better version of myself, one who's more fully alive, a more beautiful expression of the person God made me to be for my own good and for the common good. A journey of becoming a better housemate for the people who find themselves in quarantine with me. How do I keep moving forward? How do we keep moving forward? And not only that, but how do we know that all of this suffering and all of this labor and toil is not in vain. As we strive for peace, as we strive for justice in the midst of a broken world, how do we know that's worth it? And for those of us who've been Christians for any real length of time, this question should resonate with us deeply because at some point, every one of us hits those places where we encounter our own brokenness, or where we encounter the jagged edges of the brokenness of this world, the painful reality of life in this world, and some of us get stretched maybe even to our breaking point. For some of us, the challenge has come in an unexpected tragedy that has forever changed the way we look at the world. For others among us, it's been a relationship that has grown increasingly difficult over the years, and we feel that it's draining us of any energy to keep moving forward. And for others still, it's been a pattern of destructive behavior that we've seen manifest in our own lives. One that we've struggled against for years, but we've seen little change. And it leaves us feeling depleted of any real spiritual strength. And of course, you can just add to that list, right? Our health, our work, our finances, our disappointment with political leaders, not to mention the weariness and a host of other emotions that touch our lives in unique ways during this time of COVID and our nation's reckoning with our original sin 
of racism. We have no shortage of potential pressures that leave us asking the question, how do I continue to move forward? And how do I continue over the long haul when sometimes it just seems like it would be so much easier to throw in the towel, to wave the white flag of surrender and give up to the brokenness in my life, the brokenness in the world. But these questions aren't only for those of us who are more seasoned in the faith, right? If you're someone who's new to Christianity or you're just beginning to consider what a life of following Jesus is all about, this is an important question for you too, because honestly, as soon as you begin to take seriously what God says about the kind of life that he calls his people to live, then you find that following Jesus is one of entering into suffering more than it is one of avoiding it. And so what you can expect as you enter into a life of Christian faith is not a journey that is only excitement and happiness. There can be much of that, but it's a journey that is principally patterned after the life of Jesus himself, who entered into the suffering and brokenness in order to bring life and healing to those very places. And so the Christian life is one of pilgrimage, a challenging yet glorious journey. And our Psalm this morning gives voice to a very real part of our experience along the way. The challenge of perseverance and what it takes to be a people who do in fact believe that because of Jesus and because of the faithfulness of God, we shall overcome someday. And so as we wrestle with our questions of perseverance, let's just briefly consider three, three things that this Psalm prompts us to reflect on. The affliction we experience the righteousness of God and the way we think about our enemies. So if you look at verses one through three, these draw our attention to affliction. And what we see immediately at the beginning of this Psalm is the mutual sharing of the burden of affliction and the importance to giving voice to experiences of suffering. Verse one, it begins, greatly have they afflicted me in my youth from my youth, which is the voice of the cantor, the one leading the, the call and response singing of the people on the journey. And so the cantor sings first and leading the people in this liturgical singing. And then everyone else joins in, let Israel now say, and they repeat the line. So what we see here is the solidarity of the people in recognizing the affliction that they have experienced. And not only that, but we see the community receiving the burden or affliction of one person and entering into it as their own. So what affliction is it? What, is it? what are they even talking about? Well, like any good song with real staying power, the psalm speaks in general terms. You know, maybe, maybe the psalm is talking about the, uh, Israel's time in exile, maybe just after exile. It's really hard to know for sure. But if you think about, for example, you know, we shall overcome, why has it had such staying power? It's a song about enduring the challenges and injustices of Reconstruction America, very specifically, but it speaks broadly and generally in a way that Europeans in the 1970s and in the 1980s and South Africans in the 1980s and 90s could sing the very same words about their own situation. And Psalm 129 is sort of like that. And so the question for us this morning is not so much what exactly is the psalmist talking about in a specific sense, but it's this. What afflictions do you and I face? 
And what would it look like for us to give voice to our suffering in a way that allows for us to bear that burden of affliction together? For many of us, the answer to that first question, what affliction do we face, is an obvious and immediate one. It's right on the tip of your tongue. You don't need time to think about it because it's right at the center of your daily experience. And there are all sorts of places where we experience pain and loss in our bodies and our relationships and our families and our finances and our professional lives. And we can name those things pretty quickly. But in other cases, the answer might not be as clear because we are afflicted in ways that are beyond what we feel. And one of the things this psalm teaches us is that affliction, as we see it here, it's not defined primarily in terms of our feelings, but in terms of God's good purposes for the world. You see, affliction in the mind of the psalmist is that which runs counter to God's intention for the way things ought to be. It's affliction not just because it hurts, but because it's tragic. And grief is the appropriate, even necessary response to such tragedy, which is why lament is such an essential practice in the church. Our becoming more fully human in God's image will require our learning to weep over the things which God grieves. And as we do life together as a community of faith, whatever that looks like in COVID time, it is so, so important that we grow in our capacity for and our commitment to speaking honestly and openly with one another about our affliction in our own personal stories and in our ongoing experience of life in this world. We need to share life at that level. Being on the journey together, it's going to mean listening to one another. It's going to mean sharing our burdens with one another. It's going to mean bearing those burdens together. And it's going to mean carrying those burdens is into the presence of the God who is faithful to comfort and heal us in our afflictions. Also the God who is able and willing to help us interpret our suffering through the lens of God's enduring love and promise-keeping faithfulness. Because you see, the promise of this psalm, of the scriptures, of the gospel of Jesus, is that affliction doesn't get to prevail against God's beloved. And every one of us, you, me, every one of us, needs help believing that. Sometimes I need you to believe that for me when I don't believe that. Sometimes you need me to believe that for you when you don't believe that. We need one another, not only to sit together as fellow sufferers, as described in verses one through three, but to journey together toward this God whom we meet in verse four. The psalmist says, the Lord is righteous. What does that mean? It means just this, that God is the one who is right, who is good, who is just. His righteousness is rightness. And he's committed to restoring his creation, his world, his beloved, to rightness as well. And as we read this psalm as Christians, we just have to see this in a whole new light. It's not only that God will do this great work of deliverance in the future so that we keep moving forward in the present in light of a better day to come. That's part of it, but it's more than that. As Christians, we read this psalm understanding that God has come in person in Jesus Christ. 
He has embodied a faithful life in our midst and he's actually taken upon himself the consequences of injustice, deceit, affliction, everything else that is part of this whole trajectory of the world away from God. God chose to enter that tragic mess, this tragic mess. He bound himself to us in the midst of it. He walked this pilgrim's path to the cross where he met the natural end of that trajectory, his own humiliation and suffering and death, but his story didn't end there, nor does ours, because his story moved from that death to resurrection. And in his resurrection, what happened? Death was utterly stripped of its power and Jesus ushered in a new day, a day where death doesn't actually reign the way it used to, a day where we can actually live in our present moment, not just looking forward to a brighter future, but knowing that the future has so invaded our present brokenness in Jesus Christ that our lives may be caught up in it now. And that's the path of our pilgrimage. As we journey by faith through this broken world, living the future now, living as it were, as witnesses to heaven on earth through Jesus Christ. And that path of following Jesus is one that takes us through affliction, not away from it. Miroslav Volf writes this, in taking upon himself the sin of the world, God told the truth about the deceitful world and enthroned justice in an unjust world. When God was made sin in Christ, the world of deceit and injustice was set aright. Since the new world has become reality in the crucified and resurrected Christ, it is possible to live the new world in the midst of the old in an act of gratuitous forgiveness without giving up the struggle for truth and justice. Do you hear what he's saying? that this new world of rightness has begun in Jesus. And what it means to be a follower of Christ is to live the new in the midst of the old, to be these bearers of gratuitous forgiveness as we seek peace and justice in the world. And this is what the righteousness of the Lord means for us today, that God has proven to us in Jesus that he is absolutely committed to persevering in his work of setting things right. And our struggle as sufferers and as allies to others who are suffering will not be in vain. And it is with that hope that the psalmist takes us in verses five through eight to think again about enemies. And what we see in this space is that enemies here are described specifically as those who hate Zion. Now, what does that mean? Well, Zion is like this poetic shorthand in the Old Testament for Jerusalem and the temple, the place in the Old Testament where God is understood to be, right? The epicenter of creation, the fountain from which God's blessing flows in a life-giving way to all the earth, okay? That shows up in like Isaiah 2, where we get this beautiful vision of peace and justice flowing uh, from Zion to the world. And so in the Israelite mind, Zion is this place, the fount of every blessing. And to, to, to be a hater of Zion is to be opposed to that which gives goodness and life to the world. It's to subvert the current of God's blessing. 
So right off the bat, we actually find a really helpful instruction. We can't fall into the trap of thinking of our enemies as people who are primarily oriented against us, or as people who get in our way as we pursue our own personal agendas. The enemy that is in view is the entirety of all that moves away from God and what God is doing in the world, all that threatens to choke out life. But there's another lesson for us to learn as we come to the New Testament, as we just did in our gospel reading, where Jesus teaches us that we are to love our enemies. And Jesus shows us that the battle that he came to fight is not a violent battle against people, but a spiritual battle against an altogether different enemy, an invisible one, but a real one, a spiritual one. And the enemy in view in the life of Jesus and the enemy in view in our own lives is not other people. It's a spiritual reality. It's the undertow that pulls all things away from God and subjects God's world and God's beloved to affliction and tragedy. And that is the exact enemy that Jesus has conquered in his death and resurrection. And so when he says, love your enemies, why is that? Because they are not ultimately your enemy. God has come to be the God of reconciliation. He's come to defeat the great enemy that he might make peace between us and God and between us and one another, between God and neighbor. This is what the prophets longed for and it's what Jesus came to achieve. And so this morning, as you and I come together as Christians in this place and this time to think about how we can pray a prayer like this, Psalm 129, we have to see that the way we pray these words is not as a prayer of mean-spirited cursing against the people who disagree with us on the things that we have deemed non-negotiable if we are to be friends. We pray prayers like this for the blessing of God to take over this world, to take over my heart and your heart, for God to stop all that tries to subvert his blessing and life-giving activity in the world and for all of humanity, us included, to be swept up into this new life of blessing that God has brought to us in Jesus. That's our hope. And this is what it means for us to live today in light of this righteousness of the Lord and to let that be the definitive word over against the afflictions that we and our neighbors suffer. The righteousness of the Lord endures forever along with all this new world that he's making. So what does it look like? That's pretty abstract. Live the future now. What does it look like to do that? It looks like sacrificial love. It looks like gratuitous forgiveness. It looks like Jesus. And so what does it take then for us to become a people like that? to become a people who pattern our lives after the pattern of our savior, who move into these broken places and bring life and reconciliation and who participate with him in this mission of blessing. What does it take? It takes knowing God and experiencing at a deep level the power of his transforming love in your own life. It takes deep relationships with other people, allowing others to actually hold and carry the most delicate and difficult pieces of your story, of your affliction and your hope. It takes role models who show us the way. And you know what else it takes? It takes pilgrim songs. The songs we take to our lips and rehearse together as we think about and live into the story of what God is doing in the world. 
as we let our thinking and our dreaming, our hoping, our aspirations, our actions, all to be caught up in the movement of God, to love what he loves, to desire what he desires. And not just that the end picture that he shows us of a world, of the way that it ought to be, that that would reign in our imaginations, but the means by which he brings that world about would help us decide what to do. Self-sacrificial love in the footsteps of our savior, Jesus. This is the pilgrim's path. May God give us grace to look to him, to see Jesus and to know that the righteousness of God prevails over the brokenness, to know that Jesus has actually defeated our real enemy, even the one inside of us who afflicts us from within, so that in the midst of suffering, we would be a people who share a real and lasting hope and who can say we shall overcome in all of the best and most life-giving ways for our own sake and for the sake of the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.